Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Tiny Frozen Shrimp Edition. It's Wednesday, November 1st, 2017. On today's show, the essayist, novelist, screenwriter, on and on Joan Didion is the new subject of a loving documentary directed by her nephew, the actor Griffin Dunn. We discussed Joan Didion, The Center Cannot Hold, and then the legendary sitcom Will and Grace is back on NBC after an 11-year vacation. Does it return as a great old friend or a bygone uh, anachronism? And finally, we must sadly revisit the state of gender and power relations given new revelations about Harvey Weinstein and now, of course, Leon Weaseltier and Mark Halpern. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Uh, and of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. The actor Griffin Dunn is nephew to Joan Didion, the essayist, screenwriter, and novelist. He's made a documentary about her featuring extensive archival footage and new interviews with Didion and her high-powered culturati friends. The resulting documentary is Joan Didion, The Center Cannot Hold. It's uh, released simultaneously on Netflix and to theaters. Let's listen to a clip. My first notebook was a Big Five tablet given to me by my mother with the sensible suggestion that I stop whining and learn to amuse myself by writing down my thoughts. The first entry is an account of a woman who believes herself to be freezing to death in the Arctic night, only to find when day breaks that she has stumbled onto the Sahara Desert where she will die of the heat before lunch. I have no idea what turn of a five-year-old's mind could have prompted so insistently ironic and exotic a story. But it does reveal a predilection for the extreme, which has dogged me into adult life. All right. Well, um, Joan Didion, uh, Dana, I think it's safe to say, is one of the goddesses of uh, American letters. Um, I think the annual ritual of wondering whether Philip Roth 
uh, is ever going to win a Nobel Prize for Literature ought to transfer to Joan Didion. She's of that stature. Um, uh, one year they ought to give it to both of them. I think that would be a, a, a tremendously apt outcome. Uh, Joan Didion is a is a great writer, regardless of how one feels uh, necessarily about any of her particular works. What do you think of Joan Didion and what do you think of this movie? Very interested in Joan Didion. Was very excited that there's a documentary about her. Uh, I, I mean, I think we should talk about her work as part of this conversation. But just to get straight to the documentary, I think that she deserves better than this documentary. Although this documentary does fulfill its mandate. Griffin Dunn has said in, in interviews about this, this was always meant to be a love letter to my aunt. And it's it's unashamedly personal and has it is not meant to have a critical gaze or any kind of broad sweeping argument or really in a way to be about her writing, although there are a lot of sections like we just heard of her reading from her own writing. And others reading from the work too. And others. Um, But to me, it felt extremely slight. It was a lovely portrait of where she's at right now in her life. But I didn't feel like I got a sense of the sweep of the political world that she's covered, of her time as a screenwriter and what her experiences in Hollywood were. There's a lot about her family about her husband, John Gregory Dunn, and her daughter, both of whom died within one year of each other. If you're a Joan Didion follower at all, you know this story well, but he died, I think, 13 years ago, and she died 12 years ago, shortly afterward. There's a lot about those stories and about the two books, The Year of Magical Thinking and Blue Nights, that she wrote about those two losses. But I didn't feel like I, if I had never heard of Joan Didion, that I would walk out with a sense of what an important American writer she was and exactly uh, what the trajectory of her career had been. And if you did go in knowing about Joan Didion, you did not come out knowing anything new about Joan Didion, except for maybe having a sense of what she's like when she talks or what it's like to sit on a couch with her, which is something, but a pretty small something. Yeah, almost nothing new. I mean, even the, the photographs that, that were shown were all, I mean, she's one of the most photographed and sort of, you know, glamorous writers. And I felt like I was even familiar with the old still photos that were shown. I mean, this is always the problem with the documentary about a speaking subject, right, is what do you show while they're talking or reading from their work or whatever it is. And a lot of times I felt while it, they were it was interesting to see those images that they were exactly the image that I would have chosen to plug in. If somebody said, Joan Didion in California in the 70s, I would have picked that photo of her standing next to the Corvette Stingray wearing a caftan and holding a cigarette that's been on the cover of countless stories about her. So I felt, especially given that it was her nephew putting it together, there were some old home movies of his family and things like that that kind of added to the texture. But yeah, I didn't feel like either visually or verbally I was getting a lot of new information. The other thing is, I mean... I came out of the movie, we did this movie in large part, I think, Dana, because you were so excited for us to discuss it. And uh, I came out and I was like, oh, fun. It'd be fun to talk about Didion with these guys. We never have. Um, And then I came out of it being like, God, why would anyone make a documentary about Joan Didion? I mean, she's turned this lapidary lens on the core of our curdling culture. And, you know, she's like dissected all of us. And then she's dissected herself already. So what's left? And it feels to me like the bar Mm -hmm. is so high with what she's performed in her own work that you definitely don't want the nephew version of the documentary. I did think one thing that Mm -hmm. was interesting, hearing her voice and comparing her work to her image, is that one argument for there to be a documentary about Joan Didion, maybe not this one, is that she is glamorous, that she's cool, you know, that she's not sort of the writer as the mousy wallflower observer. She was at the center of the story looking like a badass with her cigarette and her caftan and her Corvette Stingray. Um, 
she had that kind of allure in a way that very few female figures ever have, seldom do. And so you have an opportunity in the documentary to kind of look at the glamour and the image making and try to understand what, where that came from and what that piece meant to her or didn't mean to her. I mean, she sort of has the hauteur of the truly cool who aren't even thinking about it, uh, maybe. So maybe there's nothing to dissect. Right. Um, So I, I, you know, a number of years ago, I taught uh, creative nonfiction and at the end of the semester, I just went around the table, 12 extremely bright, young Ivy League kids, and asked them, which of the writers we studied this semester, do you, whose, whose talent do you envy the most? And um, a couple of the boys predictably said Wolf, that, that pyrotechnical you know, humor um, kind of has a you know, late adolescent boy appeal that's inexorable. Everyone else, including... Me, the teacher, said uh, Didion. Um, they're, they're, you know, Didion is a is a great writer. She's a great writer at the level of the sentence. She's a great writer when you look at her oeuvre as a taken as a whole. Um, you know, she's for forty or fifty years or whatever it's been. She's been this kind of nervous filament. You know, whose job it is to pick up hidden frequencies and vibrations from the weirdness of American culture. And she, you know, she, she's just done it exquisitely. What can you say for 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 every one of those decades? She's picked out you know, a handful of things that were totally compelling to write about and, you know, kind of urgently central to the, to the, you know, kind of nervous breakdown, slow nervous breakdown that American culture always seems to be. So like, you know, the Manson murders, obviously, Patty Hearst, Jim Morrison, California uh, itself, the weirdness of California, which is just in her bones. I mean, she's Californian through and through in a lot of ways. Um, I love Joan Didion. I also hate Joan Didion, which I think is the intelligent person's obligation in some ways. I mean, I think that there's a, another a shadow side to her in the same way that one should obviously have deep reservations about Philip Roth, even though I do think Roth and Didion are the great living American writers of their generation, and they both deserve a Nobel Prize. I think, you know, Didion has entered a, a very unlikely, octet, you know, late career, very late career, kind of end of life iconographic phase about which now it's our obligation to be skeptical. And there's none of that skepticism in this documentary, which to me was in someone like me who has mixed feelings is very inflaming of the negative feelings. Um, I mean, she's an extremely self-important and self-conscious person. Um, I think she misrepresents. I mean, I, I don't even want to get into it, but there, I, you know, but one thing I will say is what something that could have been included in this documentary and possibly still kept it a, a, a adequate love letter from a you know blood relative is her feud with Pauline Kale and you know for people interested in that other side of Joan Didion is you know Kale was also from California but she was from a Petaluma chicken ranch and she perceived Didion as a princess um, and as a very specific form of kind of Californian princess who goes to Berkeley and on and on and and Kale had it out for her but but and and reviewed played right, as Kale a went to Berkeley I think too. exactly that they went to they went to Berkeley as entirely different creatures from entirely different backgrounds and and um Kale they they could only think of one one another as social types and um Kale went directly after her uh, as this social type, and I, I think she was either reviewing the book played as it lays, but but she kind of anatomized um, the snobbery that I think really is characteristic of of Didion, um, and um, and Didion spent a lifetime taking revenge on Kale. I mean, tr- trying to do it without seeming to do it, and and in that you could have gotten at something about, you know, 
beneath that cool is an enormous self-consciousness and and high culturati, you know, a culturatus or culturata, you know, self-possession um, that has an obnoxious quality to it, right? Uh, of the sort that flaunts one's closeness to the film business when one is in New York and flaunts one's closeness to the literary world when one is in California, Um, which I think was true of both her and her husband with whom she wrote screenplays for many years. And I say this as someone who has a towering admiration for her, but, but real admiration for a writer, especially a writer of that stature, comes through the lens of criticism and out the other side, right? Or comes through the, the the path of criticism and comes out the other side as a real and serious admiration. And not seeing someone of that stature in all her dimensions, three you know, sort of from three three hundred and sixty degrees, is I, at the end of the day is weirdly a disservice. I, I, and so I, I I was very disappointed by this. I mean, there is one moment in the documentary that, while not striving to be critical of her, lays bare this part of her that I know bothers many readers that make them admire her style but find her a cold and uh, and cruel writer, which is the moment she describes researching an essay in her book, Slouching Toward Bethlehem. It was in the summer of 1967, I think, and she's on the track of all these hippies and trying to figure out what's happening in these hippie flop houses. And this is emergent every single review of this of this documentary. So it seems to be the moment that strikes everyone. And her nephew asks her about this moment that she discovers in a house full of of hippies, this little five-year-old girl who's tripping on acid, and she interviews her for this essay. And of course, even hearing those words is kind of chilling, and you find yourself thinking, well, why didn't she grab the kid and run? Or, you know, did she feel at that moment that she should transform from being a, a objective journalist into, you know, some sort of intervening Good Samaritan? And he says, what did you think at that moment? What what was going through your mind? And she pauses for quite a long time. And then she says, it was gold. And then she basically said, I don't have the exact quote, but she essentially says, you know, this is the moment that every journalist is waiting for. Um, and she doesn't really soften it afterwards by saying, yes. I know that sounds awful or anything like that. And I think, Julia, you've talked about this quality in her writing. Maybe even, I seem to remember, maybe it wasn't you, that we were talking about the year of magical thinking and an insight that she has in that book when she's talking about not having accepted yet in the first few days after John Gregory Dunn has died that he's really gone, that she wants to attend his autopsy, but they won't let her. And uh, and maybe it wasn't you, but some someone else I know who had read that book said, oh, at that moment, I really, I found her really alien and frightening. And uh, and I actually really understood mm-hmm. that moment in the book. And it seemed in, in her own strange clinical way that that was a gesture of warmth toward him. But that reminds me of, you know, it was gold on seeing the, the little girl suffering. Mm. Yeah, I, there's something about proximity as a theme throughout her work. I mean, in the famous essay about Manson and the White Album, she talks about the the um, fam- the quote unquote main Manson family drove by her house on the way to um, Polanski's. You know, where of course they brutally murdered br- brutally murdered Sharon Tate. I mean, the sense that she's close to the action, but total, but while being in the room, also totally detached from it both morally and um and kind of emotionally um it's a very funny kind of authority and it's it's very distinctive to her you know one thing i really want to point out before we end i i mean i i regard her as uh, you know a, 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 like a truly great writer and and of the great nonfiction writers produced over the last half century maybe the best i mean i i think janet malcolm is the dark horse in that argument and um i personally prefer malcolm's work to didion's nonetheless i'm not, I'm not at all trying to imply that she's not that great uh, unassailably great a writer 
um, in being at all critical of her. Um, but one thing I absolutely want to say is that Hilton Owls describing what it was like as a, a young African-American um, uh, to read Didion's essay on the Central Park Five, uh, the the young men accused of killing the job, brutally murdering a Central Park jogger. What it was like for um, you know, for him to hear a voice of cultural authority in the pages of the New York Review of Books turn that withering skepticism on the um, dominant narrative about those young black men. How empowering that was to him, and that's a, that's. I think it's an anomalous moment in the documentary, but it's an enormously moving one in which you see what the power of words, um, you know, can be. Uh, And um, I think she's had that effect in many of her essays. I just wish that that had been uh, represented more fully in the course of the documentary. So don't go watch it. Go read some Joan Didion. I mean, I guess you could you could glean if you know nothing about her life, you could glean a little bit from it. But I'd rather glean those things from reading her writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, the documentary is Joan Didion, The Center Cannot Hold. It is streaming on Netflix. I think you can catch it still in a theater somewhere. Uh, we're mixed. We'd love to hear whether you are at Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. OK, moving on. All right. Now is the moment in the podcast. We talk uh, talk business. Uh, Julia Turner, what do you have? Uh, in case our listeners missed it, Hit Parade, the wonderful uh, new-ish Chris Melanfi podcast now in its own feed, dropped a new episode that you should check out. In 2004, Prince joined Tom Petty on stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony for what is now regarded as the institution's greatest live performance. They were both first ballot inductees, but their similarities go much deeper. On this month's Hit Parade, Chris Melanfi tracks the surprising parallels between two artists, from their fights with the music industry to their hits across genres and generations, even the songs they gave to Stevie Nicks. Check that out in the Culture Gab Fest feed, or even better, subscribe to Hit Parade in its own feed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, in Slate Plus today, we were inspired by a piece about Rorschach tests to take some Rorschach tests. We'll figure out which of us, I don't know, sees monsters, which of us sees butterflies. One of us is leaving the studio in a straitjacket. <laughs> Stay tuned. We I are think, in a padded it, room, to be fair. I, I think each one of us is a Rorschach test that we've given to our audience for 10 years to, to quite <laughs> vivid responses. Uh, uh, the Culture Gap Fest Diagnostic. To listen to that segment and others like it and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and a great way to support Slate and the work we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. If you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve. All right. Well, before we return to the show, I'm just going to say super quickly, this Monday at noon, November 6th, noon, I'm delivering a talk at Duke University. It is open to the public. It is in something called the West Duke Building. I'm going to be talking about, I don't know, neoliberalism and I don't know how it, how it screwed us all over. Uh, anyway, so noon at Duke University, Monday in West Duke Building. Um, come show up, say hi, and then there's going to be some kind of a discussion workshop after that. Okay. See you there. Will and Grace, the sitcom, legendary sitcom, has returned to NBC after an 11-year hiatus. It stars, of course, Eric McCormick as Will and Deborah Messing as Grace. They are best friends. 
and roommates. Uh, I'll now quote from Willa Paskin. It always had the structure of a classic sitcom, the straight man surrounded by his wacky pals with a twist. The straight man wasn't straight. To talk about uh, Will and Grace, old and new, its legacy and uh, its revival, we are joined by our intern, Daniel Schrader. Daniel, welcome to the welcome to the mic. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, before we dive in, let's uh, let's listen to a clip. Congressman Steve Sandoval. I hate it when bad guys are handsome. It's like Scar and Lion King. Who cares what he looks like? He's trying to gut the EPA. I am so impressed. You are so woke. I used to be woke. Now I use my pussy hat to sneak candy into the movies. Get back into it. Write your representative. I should write. Why don't you? I don't want to write. I'm so busy. What can I do that's low effort, high impact? Fart in an elevator? That was not me! That is fake news. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, Daniel, I, 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 it's yeah. very sitcom-y. It's really, really sitcom-y. Let's, let's start with what do, you, what, do you, what do you love about the show? You're a fan of it. Explain to us, the noobs, what what you like about Will and Grace. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, um, I don't know how much I love this new season, uh, but I, I grew up watching Will and Grace as a kid. I would watch it on reruns and um, watched the end of it as it was airing. Uh, and I just really loved it because it was a depiction of like just gay people in New York that kind of was an aspirational life uh, that I looked up to. And so it, it was fun to just see these characters who I dreamed of becoming just on screen as just normal people. And it was funny in its very 90s sitcom style. And I just don't think that that sitcom style has aged well because it doesn't seem to have changed at all for them. Yeah, it mm. is amazing. It's like unfrozen caveman sitcom. Like, <laughs> and it, it, I think I probably watched more Will and Grace than... Dana and Steve, since you guys were probably in grad school during its heyday, and I was just, you know, at home watching Thursday Night Must See TV with the rest of America. But the things that made it feel somewhat fresh at the time, you know, there's this whole set of gay comedies from the mid to late 90s that have aged incredibly strangely. So I would put Will and Grace in this camp, In and Out with Kevin Klein, where he realizes that he's gay, uh, The Birdcage. You know, it sort of felt like there was this late 90s moment, maybe after the early 90s moment of like Philadelphia and gay representation on screen being entirely about AIDS um, that moved to like, no, we can just have gay people on screen just being gay. Um, and yet there, it was novel enough and there was enough discomfort with it that when you go back and look at those representations of gayness, they seem crazily stereotypical and thin and kind of undifferentiated right undifferentiated very focused on like the straight people's nervousness and response to gayness like the whole they they feel like necessary objects of cultural revolution that probably should mostly be discarded and then comes the reboot boom and a, the fact that none of those actors have another going project right now and it's like let's just gather back around the campfire guys and it's 
It's very, very strange. Yeah, it's still experience. multiple camera. It's still filmed in front of a live studio audience. Some of it is. Or some of it a laugh track? Uh, yeah, some of it is a laugh track. They, they said film before live studio audience, though, yes. at least before the pilot of the new season. They've said that um, before a couple of the episodes this season, but really mainly the B-plots are what's been filmed in front of a live studio audience, um, like the new stuff. So in the one of the more recent episodes when you have the really weird jokes about Karen sexually harassing Grace's new employee or and then throwing like paper towels at him because he's Puerto Rican. That was filmed in front of a live studio audience, things like that. And there's just something aggressively topical about this new series that Which doesn't didn't used fit to be. With me. Yeah, I feel like it wasn't as I think that this series is really trying to address the current state of America, like the Trump presidency and things like that, which if they're trying to get a younger audience is not necessarily, I think, the best route because we are exhausted of that. And um, I, I think it's important to engage with that, but it's not necessarily important to laugh about it. I mean, I mm. that first episode, which we heard the clip from, both the plots, the A plot and the B plot, both revolve around Trump. The idea is that Will is has a crush on the congressman that we hear him writing that letter to in the scene that we listen to, right? So mm-hmm. so his, uh, his disgust that the EPA is being dismantled is being undercut by his lusting for this Republican congressman. And Grace, who's an interior decorator, gets the, gets the job completely unrealistic that just comes to her out of the blue, but she gets the job to redecorate the Oval Office, leading to her and Karen getting to hang out in the Oval Office by themselves with no security whatsoever. And, and then eventually like a pillow fight in the Oval <laughs> Office with no security. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, but the lack of realism aside, just the way that both of those characters were, were compromised by their, their willingness to throw aside their supposed you know, liberal bona fides to help out the Trump administration or the Republican Party really kind of grossed me out. It just it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. I sort of felt like, well, if I had cared about these characters, I would feel seriously compromised by their choices. And, and in general, by the way, by the glibness with which the Trump administration was turned into this bunch of jokes. I mean, I guess that's just we, the era we're in now. We're 10 months into the presidency and there's going to be bad jokes about it as well as, you know, good jokes or or really true, sad analyses. Of but, course. I, I mean, when it comes to like the the characters accepting jobs for the that have to do with the Trump presidency, like, OK, I can't ever get mad at anyone for getting a paycheck. But at the same time, like this is really gross. And no one I think my age would ever consider taking a job with Trump just because they needed money or something like that. It's just weird. And, also, and there's not a reckoning. There's not a no, moment where the two of them will and grace it down and say, we're guys, disgusting. This is not what this show. I, mean, I know. I know. What, the, what the show is trying to do. <laughs> Is make fun the hammer. is make fun of liberal hypocrisy. I mean, I think Willa pointed this out in her review that you know they they were as much narcissists as the Seinfeld crew, but slightly more likable um, and and slightly more politically attuned, just because they would more directly address the struggles of being a woman or being gay in a way that was not particularly Seinfeldian, but still just Thursday night narcissists, basically, <laughs> and that the show now that like a broader swath of sexuality is more widely represented in the culture is trying to make their specific liberal hypocrisy a target in some way. And I actually think that's like a clever notion. You know, there's certainly liberal hypocrisy to skewer. It's just that the jokes are so broad and stupid. So like, well, and you see uh, them coming from a mile away. Like it's, the Cheeto, yes, exactly. like she compares she compares Trump's skin to a Cheeto. Are you fucking kidding me? You can write a joke in 2017 in like October of 2017 that compares Trump's skin to a Cheeto and not just right. be like laughed out of a room. Like, right. how could you have any self-respect right. as a writer of television <laughs> comedy right. and right. put that joke out into the world? No, like, no, no. it's I just mean, embarrassing. So, right. No, so the first 
literally in the first 13 seconds of the of the reboot there's a joke about grinder and a joke about millennia mm. trump right and so it's trying to say we're au courant on uh, in both respects both to you know topical humor we're not stuck in 1998 and in terms of um gay life right you know the distance has traveled uh, since the this show first went on the air, you know we're we're, we're contemporary with that as well. But, but what happened to this show has much less to do with, um, you know, the advent of uh, gay marriage and um, and uh, the Trump presidency and uh, you know the Obama presidency, which it missed completely. What happened was Thirty Rock and streaming and social media, and you know the Cheeto joke. You know, if you've if you've even like if your eye has even grazed a shelf that has an iPhone lying on it, you've seen that joke <laughs> one billion times on the on the internet. You know, it's been it's been it's been you know metamorphosized and meta responded to one billion dimensions before you get to it. Just as a naive, you know, there's no naivete anymore. The rhythm of a sitcom has changed. Nobody nobody anymore watches the joke you know, the sort of three joke per page. I mean, we live in the age of Rick and Morty. Forget 30 Rock, right? We're like 30 Rock's old fashioned. We're, we're, we're at a lightning pace and, and a knowingness and, and levels and levels and levels of possible deconstruction of the knowingness of a sitcom like Rick and Morty. I don't know who I don't know who can go back in time and can way back it um, for this show. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, Daniel, are you sticking with it? Oh, I mean, I am because I feel obligated to, but I'm not excited about it. Definitely. Um, and I, I would push back a little bit on. Uh, yeah, of course, we have we're in an age where comedy has completely changed. But at the same time, we still have like one of the biggest TV shows, Big Bang Theory. And so like this type of show is going to succeed because it really yeah, hits I guess those. I, 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 I can see it hitting a nostalgia. You know, if you had nostalgia for this show. Right. It is. It does exactly what it used to do with some updates in the content. Right. But that's also exactly like my problem with it. It's like it feels like over the course of the eight years of the show, the characters changed and grew and became people. And then it seems like the 11 years that they were gone their lives never changed. Nothing happened mm-hmm. to them. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. in yeah. the story, like, they got divorced, and now that's why they're back in the way that they are. But, like, the characters haven't grown up in any way. It's and literally if, the same apartment, exactly. right? Same layout. And so if I find myself in that situation 11 years after, like, today, then I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to be our podcast intern for 11 years, Daniel. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I have other plans. I'm busy. <laughs> Can we talk about the character of Jack? I want to talk about the, the representation yeah, of Jack. Exactly. Because he's he's to me kind of the comic center of the show the Sean Hayes character who I think Julia described him well up top as as this kind of twinky Broadway show loving I don't know I mean the the, the Jack persona really is sort of the um a, a pretty antiquated notion of a queenie gay guy and uh and I just wonder how that how that strikes you guys at this moment in the culture I mean I, I watched the very first show the 1998 pilot to try to get some sense of what is this will and grace universe right and there was a joke in it about Jack that will makes toward Jack that in our con- in our current constellation of understanding the spectrum of sexuality was so weird they were playing poker with two straight guys of course most of the jokes revolved around how queenie Jack was and uh, and there was a moment when Will said, oh, how does it feel? And Jack said, how does what feel? And he said, living in a woman's body. And there was just this moment where, you know, this kind of transphobic joke occurs between these two gay men you know, sitting with these straight men at a poker table. And the whole thing just felt like, wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> 1998 was a long time ago in terms of the way we yeah. think about such things. Mm-hmm. It feels like now Sean Hayes is probably doing a lot 
more work than some of the other cast members. Um, he's really committing to the role, even if I don't necessarily like the role. I think, as Ben said earlier, um, off mic, Jack is a, um, like, he, he seems like a caricature, but at the same time, there are so many people that are that are that person that are like that. And so I think seeing that type of representation is great and fun. And you definitely know those characters. But at the same time, it, they don't age well at all. And he hasn't. He is still stuck in this like to me, he still feels desexualized in a way that I don't care for, regardless of how, how many times he like pursues guys on the show or something like that. There's always that type of character that for me will feel like a just a desexualized queen who's just there for a laugh and a lark, not for any actual right. growth. He's not. I mean, one of the structural problems with the show is that for it to work and be Will and Grace, neither Will nor Grace can find romantic love in a satisfying way, which mm-hmm. isn't the only thing that can happen to a human in life. But it does sort of like the the structure of the show requires them to like constantly fail at that particular area and return back to each other the way this show defines friendship as cohabitation around that same like breakfast dinette table um and then similarly Jack and Karen seem stuck in time and there the cost almost seems higher to me because i think you could do a version of Jack in 2017 that actually tackles these issues of representation that, you know, if the early representations of gay people on television was for them all to be sort of neutered super queens and like, ah, isn't it exciting to to put <laughs> snapping and sassiness and whatever, like, just it's like a, a little frisson to I wish throw everyone in our could show. just see Julia's, like, performance. <laughs> There's a lot of hand gestures. Sean Hayes via Julia Turner. Um, and you could imagine, you know, I think a lot of gay representation on television and in cinema since is more subdued in a way that like to portray someone who does have that mode of being in the world, but to portray them as a three-dimensional human with cares and desires uh, would be remarkable. And then I also just think we've all figured out what a gem Megan Mullally is since this show was last in the air. Like Megan Mullally kind of appeared to me in Will and Grace and was just always Karen. And then it was only through the broader kind of her cool ass marriage to Nick Offerman and hearing her and seeing her in different contexts that you just realize like what a comic prize Megan Mullally is. And then you're like, really? All you're going to let her do is that? She's just going to make jokes about Grace's snatch for like however many more years? Ugh. Like what a waste. Yeah, I don't begrudge her a paycheck, but it could be better. I mean, to pull back just for a second from this show, the first thing I thought when this was floated as a, as a topic idea, let's talk about the 11 years later reboot of Will and Grace, was does every single show that was once enjoyed by humankind have to be just recycled and chewed over like a cow's cud 11 years later? I'm really tired of that whole format. American Vandal is getting a second season. OK, that's not a huge delay in between. But still, you know, the minute something is successful, it has to be just gnawed over and over again to the bone. And it just made me envy the Brits with their little limited run eight episodes series that can remain perfect in time. Oh, come on. They keep they do Shakespeare over and over and over again. They won't <laughs> let that guy alone. <laughs> All right. Uh, Will and Grace has been rebooted. Um, it inspired us to bring out from the booth um, our intern, Daniel Schrader. Daniel, it was a joy talking to you. Thank you for uh, helping us out with the segment. Thanks for having me. This was great. All right. Well, on this show, occasionally we have a spiel all the time. Every segment we have Esprit Escalier, the spirit of the staircase. We we figure out what we wish we had said. This is a slightly different instance in which 
even as we were taping the segment about Harvey Weinstein, fresh news and shocking news, even more shocking news, uh, was coming over the transom about Harvey and his not just indiscretions, but his criminal and uh, deeply immoral and destructive behavior. Uh, there have been only more revelations since, not only about Harvey Weinstein, but about the legendary literary editor of the uh, back of the book of the New Republic magazine, Leon Weaseltier, and uh, the um, uh, television news correspondent and editor, Mark Halperin, uh, and journalist. Um, and James Toback uh, and Kevin Spacey. And, yes, also James Toback and now Kevin Spacey. Uh, were obviously a, 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 a watershed moment of some kind whose nature will only be known in retrospect. Uh, we are now in the middle of, um, and it just bears revisiting, I think, uh, even even this quickly. Julia, why don't I start with you? This is There are many, many different places to grab onto this and really try to understand what we're collectively going through as a culture when it comes to power relations uh, relative to sexual relations. Um, you start where you feel like you need to start. Yeah, it's been astonishing and it keeps coming and they're keeping more stories and they're keeping more. But yeah, I've been toggling back and forth between feeling like uh, incredibly dismayed at how badly people treat each other and heartened by the fact that people seem interested in change. It's it's sort of like a, a forest fire or some sort of huge disaster. You know, it's sort of like realizing that some huge space that you thought had a certain integrity has been, you know, utterly damaged and destroyed. And then the question is, what's going to grow there next? You know, and, and it seems like a long time until there'll be any green shoots coming up at all, because these revelations keep on coming from different fields. I mean, and as I keep hearing getting pointed out in interesting conversations about this phenomenon, you know, all the fields that are uncovering these monsters so far are high profile media related fields, right? I mean, we're, I guess there's been a little bit of talk about uh, sexual abuse and harassment in the restaurant industry, for example. But even that, I think, has been focused on high profile restaurants that get a lot of coverage, you know. So then if you start thinking about all the other less glamorous fields in which this is also occurring, then it does, it does just start to feel like our whole society is built on this, this rotten foundation. And it's, it's hard to think of any positive spin to that. Well, and that so much of what the primary mechanism of exposure here has been journalism with uh, an important counterpart, I think, in just the ability of digital media to share stories broadly. So there have been a couple instances where a story has been posted on Medium by an individual person who claims to be a victim of a particular man in a position of moderate power, and that results in um, an investigation and that man's dismissal. But I've been thinking about what that means in terms of who the targets of investigation will be. You know, if you're like a low-level partner at a law firm and you're a gross lech, should the New Yorker and the New York Times devote investigative teams to exposing you? You're just like a random workaday lech. You're just making life miserable for, I don't know, a few dozen associates over a period of a couple decades. But you're not Harvey Weinstein, and you're not Bill Cosby, and you're not even Mark Halperin, because you you have no actual power and no actual celebrity. You're just kind of a guy who's a little bit further up the totem pole than a bunch of other women. I don't know that this mechanism really solves that problem. Mm -hmm. And then I was talking about this with another friend, a journalist, who's like, yeah, I'm sure like the glaziers... Are, are, you know, also not necessarily comporting themselves with total sexual propriety. And they're not, you know, you could maybe make the case for doing the story about what's happening at the big banks and the big law firms just in terms of sure. kind of broader societal power. But 
there's there's kind of even further that these particular mechanisms of exposure seem unlikely to stretch. Um, you know, I think the absolutely critical word um, here is 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 just power, right? So just taking gender and sexuality off the table for one second, and believe me, I'll bring them right back on. I mean, you have workplaces that are governed by formal rules, and they're you know technically they're they're governed by um, you know the the United the formal rules of the United States government, which pre- pre- prevent form certain forms of abusive power and harassment. The the problem is how formal rules get applied. Uh, is entirely dependent upon, totally contingent on the actual power relations of a workplace and of a industry. So it might have been the case that the New Republic magazine had a perfectly enlightened sexual harassment policy and an HR person who was completely sympathetic. Um, but what you had was Leon Wieseltier exercising an enormous amount of what was perceived to be power, not only in that office, because he was the surrogate of an absentee owner, and people knew that if they crossed him, they would be fired, but be well beyond that magazine in the literary world of New York and Washington, D.C., and he was known as a prosecutor of vendettas even before these story, stories came out. He's a vengeful prick and always has been, um, and uh, and the thought was that he could, his long reach could ruin your career, um, and um you know so so there's that so there's that issue now of course you bring sex and gender into it i mean you know sexual relations are in and of themselves by their nature going back to the first written record we have of people trying to reckon with them ungovernable ungovernable and ungoverned by formal rules like every attempt in human history to try to understand and frame and limit sexuality has been for better and for worse has been including the closet right has been a failure an ultimate failure and so you're confronted with a very difficult question right which is how do you create a workplace in which empowered men don't take advantage of and demean and degrade uh, and um, withhold privilege from disempowered women. And especially when you look at something like the film business, yes, it's true that, you know, Weinstein is now um, properly ostracized and exiled from it. And I'm sure there are going to be many other men. That won't solve the problem. You have an essential imbalance, which is a glut of very, very attractive young women who want something and and a very small top of the pyramid power structure of mostly white middle-aged men um, who have the power to withhold or give it. Um, and, and I think as a, as a man, the best, most productive thing I can say in a conversation like this is you have to decapitate the, the top of that pyramid and rebuild it. And you have to rebuild it with as many women and people of color within it so that the general feeling of power, of actual power, beyond the formal rules, articulated in formal rules, is that if I speak up, if I say something, it will be heard and it will be consequential. Because everyone's internalized sense of what the consequence of saying something were was, Harvey's going to fuck me and I will never work in this business again. Leon's going to fuck me and I'll never write a big byline at a glo- you know at an important intellectual magazine ever again. And that's the thing. I mean, many things need to change uh, at every single level, uh, except the behavior of the victims they, they, who bear no responsibility in this whatsoever. But the biggest thing, I think, is at the top, if there are women in power and people of color in power, then this this kind of especially baby boomer 
white male monopoly on power that allows the abuse to descend all the way down to the base of the pyramid, I think can finally change totally inconsequentially. Oh, I really hate essentialist arguments about how women make better leaders, says the woman leader. But I don't think that's I'm the argument no. Steve is making. You no, always, you that's always not assume. the argument. <laughs> I've heard, I've, many a time, uh, I have heard you. Is that the argument I just made? <laughs> Thank you, Dana. No, I, I, just, I what my, I hear from Steve is not, oh, if a woman was in power, we would all live in kumbaya peace. It's, it's let's try to have an egalitarian structure where there's there are more people with more life experiences building all the way up the top of the pyramid, not sort of like, let's put a woman in charge and she'll fix everything. No, I'm 100% in favor of that, but I'm not sure that would solve all of these problems. I'm not trying to solve all of them. I'm trying, I mean, I, I hate essentialist arguments too. Please do not impute them to me. I'm saying, you're not, are, are you saying that the monopoly, the near monopoly on power that white middle-aged men have in Hollywood is meritocratic? No, obviously not. Okay, so fix that, right? Uh, pluralize uh, the the na- you know the nature of the power holders, and you don't think that that's going to change people's confidence that when they bring forward accusations like this, they're less likely to be uh, literally to have their career prospects blotted out. I think obviously that's what we should be working toward across industries, and that. Uh, it would improve a lot of things and that perhaps it would make people who have less power with institutions feel more likely to be listened to by the people who do have power within institutions. But I also think that power can make you an asshole and it doesn't really matter what your gender is or your race is. You can become a power mad, vindictive asshole all kinds of ways. And I don't think I don't think that change alone would create a world where no one is ever harassed at work again. Yeah, I, I absolutely do not disagree with you. Uh, I hate essentialist arguments. And certainly as evidence in the in favor of your argument is the remarkable piece by Mimi Kramer about her experience with Tina Brown. Uh, it's on Medium. It's called A Likely Story. And she just calls bullshit completely on Tina Brown. She saw her as an, an enabler, absolutely in every way, a knowing enabler, willing enabler of Harvey Weinstein. Let me just ask a question from a place of total confusion, which is that it seems to me when you look at, I mean, in an obvious way, we can group the revelations about Harvey Weinstein, Mark Halperin, Leon Wieseltier, Kevin Spacey, and James Toback under one rubric or one heading or whatever. But in, in another equally obvious way, they're each very different from the others, I mean, with the possible exception of Toback and, and, and Weinstein. Sort through that confusion for me. I mean, is there is there a uniform reaction to be had in the face of each one of these? I mean, surely what's going on with Kevin Spacey is very different from what's going on with Mark Halperin. Yeah, it is. It's so vast. I feel like we need like seven more segments to really cover all the intricacies of this. But there's there's actually one commonality between the Spacey story, which just emerged, I think, last night, and uh, and the Weinstein story, which is that both of them had these really pathetic deflections in their initial public statement about it. That really, really struck me. Obviously, Spacey's deflection was, hey, surprise, I'm gay. So don't pay attention to the fact that I, you know, accosted a 14-year-old boy 30 years ago, which understandably made gay people furious that this is his way of joining their community after all these years of him being in the closet or sort of half in, half out, flirtingly, coyly, implying that he was in the closet to kind of conflate pedophilia and being gay in that way was obviously horrifying. But what about Harvey Weinstein's first statement way back in the you know Jurassic age when he was first accused? It seems so long ago now. 
which attempted to deflect the NRA and say, I'm going to I'm going to concentrate my resources on fighting, you know, for gun control. I mean, there were just these strange moments of entitlement where it seemed like there was no awareness of the gravity of the accusation. There was the amazing line in that the Harvey Weinstein piece. I mean, it's interesting where we're kind of getting uh, skilled at assessing the mea culpas of these men at this point, right? Now we've gotten several of them. I mean, they read themselves in terms of like how pathetic they are. The The top of the Harvey Weinstein one actually struck me as all right, where it was sort of like, I apologize for behavior that has hurt people. You know, he wasn't, there was like a chunk at the top where he was not denying it and he professed to accept some responsibility and to go seek treatment. And then there was this telltale transition, a few paragraphs in where it was like, I'm going to take my anger and channel it into blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wait, wait where's the anger? Up, up, up top, there was just apology. But actually, yeah, you're right. super fucking pissed that somebody's called you out on the fact that this mode of conducting your life is reprehensible and, in fact, horrifies the entire world when they find out about it. And Leon Weasel to your saying that he's shaken. Well, when you did it, you weren't fucking shaken. What are you shaken about? Getting caught. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For me, the one about Leon Weaseltier is the one that strikes closest to home. I know a lot of people who've worked at TNR over the years, the sort of intellectual idea journalism space that TNR operates in is adjacent to the space that Slate operates in. Obviously, Michael Kinsley, who founded Slate, was at the New Republic uh, there is a way in which the descriptions of that set of incidents, and I think the most powerful account is the one that Michelle Cottle, a, a longtime TNR employee, wrote interviewing her female peers at TNR and published in The Atlantic, um, that describes kind of the dynamics of intellectual power and cultivation uh, and how those can curdle into something very, very terrible and bad and something that leaves people at a lot of levels of that magazine and and not just women and people of color feeling relatively powerless in the face of um, someone who seizes power in low and uh, Machiavellian ways and grabs onto it and, and is unafraid of wielding it um, maliciously. As all of that stuff started to unfold, I kept thinking about something that Rebecca Traster wrote. I think it was just a tweet. I don't think she ever developed this into a piece, although I wish she would, which was just marveling at how much of our culture, of our understanding of our own political culture, you know, film culture, magazine culture has been formed by these few men over this period of time, right? I mean, Mark Halpern wrote Game Change, right, about the presidential election, including Sarah Palin and, of course, Hillary Clinton in the primary. So a huge part of our understanding of women in politics is being formed by this dude who's, you know, pressing his heart on against the shoulders of his female employees. All of that stuff, it, that's what I mean about really feeling like the ground has been raised and we have to start, you know, we have to replant everything from scratch. It was sort of like, Okay, you know, all of us who were sitting here puzzling over the 2016 election and how did misogyny come to play this role that we didn't think it could possibly play in 2016? Well, duh, here it is right laid out in front of you. And then and then you see, but then there's some like work that is being done by these journalists as well, where they just they uncover things that the guys actually said on the record at the time, like something Leon Weaseltier mm -hmm. said about Hillary Clinton, how she's like a nagging sure. wife and let's make her president just so she'll stop bitching at us or something like that. And it just it, it, it brings a certain shame to the to the observer or the reader as well, because you think, God, this was all happening the whole time. And how much internalized sexism do I have that that I was just letting it happen and not noticing? Right. I mean, I remember the feeling that we had, Dana, when we went and saw Wonder Woman in Australia. 
and just like sitting in that theater in Melbourne and feeling like, why hasn't anyone made this for me yet? How come it's taken seven decades for someone to make this right. for me? And like, why did I not know that it mattered? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, yeah, no, nobody's been trying to talk to me for years. Everybody's, you know, and, and I think the other thing, I mean, we should get where this is ranging so widely. And I think, you know, one thing we haven't touched on yet here, Dana, is the piece you wrote about Hollywood and how the Weinstein accusations have made you feel about your life's work assessing the work that these people make. But um, so much of our cultural sense of what romance is and what sex is and what the relations between the sexes should be and what a woman is and what a man is, is refracted through the image making that people like Harvey Weinstein have been in charge of for so long. Like, yeah, that was a huge. I mean, and even even after writing that Weinstein piece, more stuff started coming out. For example, the the Daryl Hannah Annabella Sciorra revelations were subsequent to me, me even writing about Weinstein, and I started to think about it in this also just an autobiographical way. Like I'm roughly the same age as those women, maybe a little bit younger, and so the idea of sort of what it was to be a you know, cute, sexy, interesting woman on screen was kind of formed by these women like Rosanna Arquette and Mira Sorvino and Daryl Hannah and Annabelle Ciora. And just to realize not only that all of them, to some degree, stopped making films and dropped out of sight because of the same man, you know, but that that me and a whole generation of women were growing up, you know, with this this set of ideals that were kind of being secretly undermined behind, you know, mm-hmm. off screen. It just it's it's this very sort of unsettling feeling of of one's own consciousness having been formed by something that was just a lie. Right. And a cruel one. And I mean, if there's any upside to this horrible unfolding conversation, it's that people really do feel emboldened to kind of speak their truth now, even in contexts where they might not have otherwise. And one of the things that I wrote, the first thing I wrote after that Harvey Weinstein piece was a profile of Christine Vachon, who's the kind of legendary indie producer, mainly known as, as Todd Haynes' producer, but has also been hugely influential in getting movies made that would not otherwise have been made. A lot of them by LGBTQ people, women, people that are outside the spectrum of the normal storytellers who get to tell movie stories. And uh, and she told her own Me Too story on the phone to me, and it was a complete surprise. It was very brave of her to tell it and to allow it to be published. It had nothing to do with Hollywood directly. It wasn't something that had happened in the course of her career, but when she was much younger. And, uh, and I'm sure that she would not have told that story. She's a very private, famously guarded person who lots of people told me she's a tough nut to crack and you're going to have a hard time getting much out of her. And I'm positive she would not have told that story and allowed it to be published if it hadn't been for this conversation going on. So, I mean, to the degree that people feel emboldened to finally speak their truth, maybe it can become something positive. Hmm. All right. Well, let's let that be the last word for now. Unfortunately, of course, we'll revisit this as the story continues to unfold. Hopefully, this is a major turning point in the history of of gender and power relations in this uh, in this country. But uh we will see. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and uh, join in the discussion. Okay, moving on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I have arguably a uh, an endorsement in the John Swansburg cheers <laughs> genre where it's something that everyone who listens to us probably already knows is great. 
But because a new season just started, I'm going to endorse You Must Remember This, the great podcast uh, by Karina Longworth, which is now on the Panoply Network along with us. And because it's Halloween Day now as we're taping, it just seemed worth noting that the new season has started. I think it's three episodes in as of today. They're released on, on Tuesdays. And it's about Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. The whole season mm-hmm. about is about those two actors, their histories in Hollywood. Uh, later on, maybe they'll encounter each other. But so far, it's been the two separate threads of their stories. And they both have really fascinating fascinating stories, which are also stories of, of Hollywood itself, of kind of, you know, how the system used them and recycled them and started to create horror franchises for the first time in the 1930s. Boris Karloff, of course, being the famous Frankenstein in the 1931 James Whale Frankenstein, the one that you think of when you think of movie Frankenstein, the flat top guy, and uh, and Bela Lugosi being for decades the go-to Dracula for um for some pretty good movies and some pretty terrible movies. And she tells their stories just hilariously and wonderfully. And there's no podcast like You Must Remember This. So if you're not listening yet, get spooked and start on the Bela and Boris season of You Must Remember This. I'm excited to listen to that season of You Must Remember This. Also, especially because I'm wondering how she's going to do the voices, I think, of... Oh, she got someone so good. It's Taron Killam, and he's doing the voice of uh, of Bela. She hasn't done uh, the voice of Boris yet. But yeah, one of my dreams, I hope she's listening, is to one day do a, a vocal role on You Must Remember This. 100%. That's like a major life goal. Um, I love. I still love uh, Craig Mazin as Louis B. Mayer. Oh, the best. So good. Um my endorsement this week is a novel I just finished that is excellent. It is called Imagine Me Gone by Adam Hazlett. Have you guys read it? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a really good and really readable family memoir about depression, essentially. Um, it's about a nuclear family uh, and the father and one of the sons both struggle with depression each chapter is in the point of view of a different member of the family. And so it has this kind of narrative in the round feeling where you understand how this set of issues, not widely discussed in fiction or non, um, can affect the people that it touches. And yet it's a very readable book that you want to keep reading. Like when I say to you, Dana, it's October of 2017, soon to be November. Are you looking for a great read? Would you like to read 350-odd pages about a family grappling with multi-generational struggles with depression? You might think that's not what I really want to read right now. Um, maybe you wouldn't. Maybe that's exactly what you want to read. But uh, but it's a book. I'm living it, baby. <laughs> it's a book <laughs> whose textures, um, like the it, it's a pleasurable book to read despite being a really tough story. Um, and... So I heartily recommend it. Oh man, I'm coming in right behind you. I I uh, I have I I would be shocked if at some point in the run of our podcast I hadn't already endorsed the music of Vic Chestnut, spelled C H E S N U T T, the uh, singer songwriter. We actually we, we talked we did a segment, segment when think, he died. I think yeah, at, when he died. So he killed himself uh, several years ago. Um, but uh, I just I heard an album of his I'd never heard before called Skitter on Takeoff. Skitter on Takeoff. It's really, really, really good. It's him at his best, I think, which is kind of unadorned, not overly produced um, or big arrangements. It's minimalist. It's really, really dark. And, um, you know, here's a guy who killed himself essentially because he didn't have health care. I mean, that is a mo- certainly among the reasons. I mean, he 
got in a terrible car accident before his music career um, really started and was left a paraplegic and was confined to a wheelchair. He had very expensive health care. He couldn't make enough of a living as a very, very, very well-respected you know, indie star, really. To go through the motions And be just as happy as we can be so many great great albums i mean if you haven't started with him maybe don't start with skitter but drunk is just a masterpiece west of rome i think is one of the best singer songwriter albums ever made uh he takes a little getting used to but he's a genius and it's really a long suicide note written by america i mean i hate to kind of put it in grandiose terms but um you know taking the depression you know inherent in julia's endorsement and stretching it to the entire culture i mean there's 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 a sense of just real deep inconsolable you know melancholy um running through that music along with just an acidic appreciation for this country's hypocrisies and it's beautiful music it's just incredible music highly recommended and then i'm now going to do the most the most steve endorsement of all time i found the coolest, most hidden, most remote, and most delicious in every possible <laughs> sense of the word thing in my corner of New York State, Columbia County. And it's so precious and so secret. <laughs> I'm not I'm not gonna tell you what it is. Come on. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Julia. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at Ben, edit that out. <laughs> You're supposed to dive in and give me a huge pile of shit, a pantload of shit. You didn't take your cue. No, just just delete it. This just reminding me of this really exquisite Japanese restaurant I once went to where one of the entire dishes is like lots of tiny dishes. One entire dish was like a miniature shrimp frozen inside an ice cube. That's what I was picturing Steve endorsing. Like somewhere on a rock in northeastern Vermont is an ice cube Dana. with a shrimp inside. Find that cube. Dana. Get it. Get it before it melts. Dana, I am that shrimp. I know what you're saying. Um yeah, I am a shrimp inside an ice cube, frozen inside an ice cube. But what can I say? Um, I, you're going to have to pry it out of me. I mean, these people don't want publicity. You are overestimating the degree to which we want this information. <laughs> oh, man, the shrimp gets smaller and the ice cube is melting. When you're ready, Steve, you can come back and share with the group. Oh, my. Wow, this really fucking backfired. <laughs> You're right. You're right, Julia. It wouldn't matter if we replaced every white male with a woman at the top of the power structure, would it? Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, though not to my endorsement, uh, at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com. I can't believe what I just did. <laughs> Oh my god. So we played nice. chicken and you lost. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> by, by a fucking wide margin. Uh you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash culturefest. 
Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The chief content officer of the Panoply Network is, of course, Andy Bowers. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network, an entire roster of amazing shows at panoply.fm. Please, please check them out. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and Daniel Schrader. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Thank you.